0: Hello and welcome to the first Doxet podcast. We're coming to you today on the 26th of April 2020 from lockdown in France. My name's Fiona Stewart and his name is...
1: And I'm Philip Nitschke.
0: And together we're the co-authors of the Peaceful Pill Handbook series, which is now published in English, Dutch, German, Spanish, Italian and French, of course. Now the aim of the Doxet podcasts is to cover each month's update to the peaceful online Peaceful Pill Handbook and to give readers a bit of background into the issues that we've covered and why we've covered them. But we also want to have a look at the broader right-to-die debate and how it's reported in the news media each week. Sometimes there's a news story which can be a bit confusing or it's got a political backstory that nobody knows about. We'd like to be delving into that. But we'd also like to hear from you. And if you go to the peacefulpill.com website, you'll see a link under the Doxit podcast link where you can record your own comments and we'll play those comments in next week's episode. We can play the comments and invite discussion and so the circular economy goes around. However, the first podcast for this week is on the April update to the handbook and that, as we all know, was on COVID-19, the biggest news story in town, certainly the biggest news story in the world. So what exactly does COVID-19 mean for the Right to Die movement? So here we are in the middle of the COVID pandemic discussing this awful virus. It's changed the world that we all once knew and will continue to change the world in the future. One of the groups most affected by COVID is the elderly and people with a much uh, reported underlying health conditions that we all hear. It's become such a cliche now, but I guess it's a cliche because it's true. So, Philip, tell me, what is it about COVID-19 and a good death that most concerns you?
1: Well, you're quite right about it being uh, an issue of great importance to the people that generally are involved with exit because we predominantly deal, of course, with people that are elderly and are thinking about their end-of-life questions. So here we've got a situation where a new disease that no one knows anything about comes along, seems to selectively affect the elderly. And of course, we've been hearing a lot of reports that the type of death that you may find yourself experiencing if you develop COVID and it turns into one of these nasty pneumonias that do kill a significant number of people who are infected. It's not a particularly pleasant death. So of course there's a lot of uh, interest from our members writing in sending in emails asking for details and it seemed a very important thing for us to do to try and get some information packaged together and used as an update to the handbook and so it's turned out to be a whole new chapter and effectively we've got a post-COVID-19 update to the handbook which looks specifically at the way COVID has affected, the, affected a lot of the various aspects of right to die and end of life issues.
0: I mean that is quite an interesting phenomenon isn't it in the last few weeks one out of three people perhaps who are subscribing to the online handbook are saying that they're scared out of their wits about COVID or that they've got a disease for example like COPD that they think makes them especially vulnerable and they're realizing all of a sudden that they desperately need an exit plan in place in case they should get a positive diagnosis.
1: Yeah there's a lot of issues mixed up there but I mean of course people have been hearing all sorts of stories coming through from the media And they want a bit of clarification for their own particular set of circumstances because we're not by and large as i said talking about young people we're talking about elderly people often many of whom have got some pre-existing health conditions and they would like to know more about it are my my particular pre-existing conditions ones that are likely to affect the sort of death i might experience and i might quickly add in here it's not just people that are thinking that they may die if they contract the virus other people are saying well Is the advent of this virus around the world, let's face it, it is right around the world, affecting any of the other options that I've been thinking about, such as acquiring my own drugs?
0: Now, why don't we start by talking a bit about pneumonia? We hear out of the ER departments and the ICU units that most people seem to be dying of pneumonia. Yet pneumonia, in my knowledge, has always been known as the old person's friend.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because he was indeed known as the old person's friend, and that was a title that was given to it by William Osler, really back in the previous century, back in the eighteen nineties.
0: He wasn't. He was one of the founders of the Johns Hopkins Medical Center.
1: Yeah, he was an eminent Canadian who was very interested in medical education. In fact, heard quite a lot about him when I was doing my medical studies in the way it affected medical training but a person who did put a lot of effort into studying individuals and looking at the actual symptoms and the way a person described their symptoms and how that interfered with their quality of life and the way a person died and he made the observation that back then that is in the 1890s a person who contracted pneumonia often had what by death standards at the time was a pretty good one in other words quite quickly they developed a chest infection usually started off as some upper respiratory infections such as a sore throat, something like that, moved into their lungs. Predominantly, these were bacterial infections. There were no antibiotics at the time, and there's certainly no ventilators. What happened was people got what was sort of known as a galloping pneumonia, sometimes known then as a double pneumonia when it affected both lungs, and before long, they were having trouble breathing. But more importantly, as the infection affected their lungs, they weren't getting enough oxygen into their blood, and that lowering of oxygen in the blood lowering the amount of oxygen that went to the brain meant that the cerebral hypoxia, that's the thing we often talk about in end-of-life issues, lowering the amount of oxygen to the brain can lead to quite an almost euphoric and peaceful death. And, of course, he then summed it up by saying, well, of all the ways you can die back here, back now, back in the 1890s, and pneumonia mightn't be all that bad. In fact, it spares you, I think, how did he describe it? The... uh, extremes of decay. I'd have to look that up exactly, but he had a quaint turn of phrase which basically said, you're not looking forward to it, your friends aren't looking forward to it, isn't it better to just have a quick and peaceful death? So that's the old person's friend that a pneumonia was thought to confer. Now suddenly we're hearing that these new pneumonias coming from COVID-19 aren't at all like that.
0: I think Osler, to be precise, said that a pneumonic death was akin to being taken off by it in an acute, short, not often painless illness, the old man sick escapes those cold degradations of decay, so distressing to himself and his friends. Now you're saying that a COVID nineteen pneumonia is not like that.
1: So distressing to himself and his friends, yeah. Well no, I am saying that because we're going basing this of course on the reports and there are a lot of reports now of what a death from COVID nineteen is like, and there's much reference to the fact that a person effectively drowns fluid floods into the lungs. A person lies there, unable to get enough oxygen, is gasping for air, the so-called very unpleasant symptom of air hunger, as people gasp to get enough oxygen. The lungs are filling up with liquid because what's happening is that the viral infection at the very ends of the lungs, the alveoli, the little air sacs at the end of the lungs, become so inflamed that it's not just a matter of air going into your lungs and being exchanged into your blood. Your lungs are effectively becoming like waterlogged, like a big waterlogged sponge. You can't move your lungs. Your lungs can't effectively extract oxygen. And so you might get a little bit of the euphoric effect of low oxygen in your blood getting to your brain. But more importantly, you get the very distressing symptom of not being able to breathe. And people say that they're just struggling to get enough air, to try and get enough oxygen and this gasping for breath as one feels like one's slowly drowning is anything but an old person's friend.
0: Okay, so we've established that COVID pneumonia is not particularly pleasant, but uh, from a layperson's perspective, surely by the time that you've got pneumonia, you're unconscious and you're on active ventilation. So who, who cares if it's an unpleasant death?
1: Well, a couple of points that need to be clarified there. As you're gasping for breath, someone's going to take you quickly into an accident and emergency part of a hospital where you say this person has been sick for a while. Initially, it was just a sore throat and a bit of a dry cough, perhaps a headache and a fever. But now they're having trouble getting enough oxygen. Well, the first thing they're going to do at accident and emergency is check your levels of oxygen in your blood with one of those little finger, clip, finger clips. And that will tell them straight away that you're not getting enough oxygen into your lungs, which is why you're feeling this air grasping or gasping phenomena. And then, of course, the decision has to be made. How can we try and get the oxygen level up? Maybe it's just a matter of simply giving you a little bit of oxygen through a mask or sometimes what's known as nasal prongs, that tube that goes under your nose. Switch on a bit of oxygen. A bit of extra oxygen as you're breathing may be enough to solve the problem and you can just sit there in the ward, that is the normal hospital ward, not normal, it's an infectious disease part of the hospital, but with no specific extra equipment.
0: So you're saying that not everyone who has pneumonia is unconscious on ventilation?
1: No, and just because you're a little short of breath doesn't necessarily mean you've got a pneumonia. So what we're saying is that this gradation in severity, And when you first get into hospital, maybe it's just turning into a pneumonia. Maybe your own body's immunity and defences will head off the infection and you may need little more than oxygen and sit there in bed rest for a while. But, of course, what often happens is that the situation worsens. The infection moves deeper into your lungs, further down into, your, into the respiratory tract, and then you find yourself developing a full pneumonia. A little bit of extra oxygen isn't enough. They still can't bring up the level of oxygen in the blood that's to what's required. Then they've got a couple of choices. They might just apply a face mask that seals, sort of a variation on the CPAP machines that you've seen where air is de- de- delivered to your nose and mouth under some slight pressure. That might be enough to keep the little lung sacs at the end of your lungs working and extracting oxygen, or it may not work either, and then full ventilation has to be considered.
0: Okay, so we've been talking about uh, oxygen tubes under your nose. So are we talking here about active or passive ventilation?
1: Well, that's not really ventilation. I mean, ventilation is when you have a machine that effectively takes over the breathing for you. If you connect yourself to one of these sealing face masks and a CPAP machine, or more importantly, a BiPAP machine where pressure is delivered when you take a breath and then it relaxes a little as you expire, you've effectively got a machine doing some of the work for you. That's known generally as passive ventilation, but as I was just saying, if that's not enough, and it often isn't as your lungs worsen with the infection and you're getting less and less oxygen from the air getting into your lungs, full ventilation is needed because a person becomes exhausted, struggling to try and get air in and out of their lungs. They become tired and often they give up and die. Well, the idea then is to try and have the whole process of breathing taken over by a machine, and that's full ventilation. When they put a tube down your throat, the so-called endotracheal tube is put into your throat by an anaesthetist usually, it's a specialised job, in a hospital, usually in an intensive care ward, and then you're connected to a machine which actually forces the air into your lungs and then effectively extracts it every time you breathe you don't do any breathing you're sedated at that stage because it's so uncomfortable so unpleasant of course you can't communicate with a tube stuck in your throat and effectively you have to be sedated because of the general difficulty so you lie there in a vaguely comatose state the machine takes over the breathing does all the work for you so it gives you the chance to have a rest and hopefully buys you time and that's what intensive care is all about of course buying time so that hopefully your own body's defences can start to do something about this damn infection,
0: but just it's not, wreaking havoc. it's not always that successful, is it? I mean, we've been reading the reports that 40 or 50% of people who go into active ventilation don't get offered alive.
1: That's right. So if you're that sick that you need active ventilation, you've got a fair chance of never recovering. In fact, you've got a fair chance of dying.
0: And I guess a lot of us would say, well, I don't want to be found dead lying on my stomach in an ICU unit with tubes and who knows what coming out of every orifice that's not a dignified death in my opinion and I think I'd rather cut my losses at this point and perhaps even not be going to hospital and thinking about my other options for a peaceful death if that's at all possible.
1: Well I should just clarify quickly that your comment about lying on your stomach really comes about because it's considered to be that the machine works better if you're actually prone as they say lying on your stomach it's a pretty uncomfortable place to be but you're unconscious effectively but as you say you could hardly call this a dignified death. You have effectively been reduced to, well, you're reduced to a comatose body, which is having, which is being serviced by machines. Now, that's a very likely situation you'll be in at death. Now, many people would say, "I do not want to die like that," and I would agree with them.
0: But it's not actually just being in hospital in an ICU unit in the worst case scenario that makes the COVID mnemonic death so grim i was really interested to hear uh two weeks ago an interview on the um radio lab podcast series actually with dr tatiana prowl who is an oncologist but she made the very poignant point that one of the biggest tragedies of the whole covid thing is that so many people are going to die alone Um, to quote her she says but among all that other tragedy is going to be that hundreds of thousands or even millions of people before this is over will die alone. And in many cases, these patients are not even attended by a physician when they're dying. You have a phone call with them from outside the room, you only go into the room if you need to lay hands on the patient or do a procedure or something. These people are going into hospital, they walk into ER, they're coughing or something, and they don't know, they don't realize. I didn't even realize. I mean, I realized, but I didn't think of it. I think that if he knew, she's talking about her father-in-law, I think that if he knew in, he went in there, that he would immediately be put into a room under the, under, as a person under investigation, but I didn't think of it, he didn't think of it, and his wife didn't know about it. So she's saying that if you deliver your loved one to an emergency room at a hospital with, and you think or they think that they might have COVID, then you may never see them again. You're not going to be there holding their hand when they die. You're not going to be there holding them. So if you've got something important to say, and hey, who who doesn't? If you think someone's, if death's imminent, death's even a possibility, you need to say the important stuff before the person goes in, because the person with the possible COVID diagnosis, the person who is going to need this need this type of intensive medical treatment, are going to be on their own, and that's something that I guess we all need to think about: is that a price that we're willing to pay to try and stay alive through COVID or not? Sorry, folks, but I know it's a little bit grim for our first Doxit podcast. In some ways, this is the times we're living in. So let's say we don't want to go to hospital and let's say that we are pretty sure that we have a a positive uh, COVID diagnosis. Philip, what can we do to speed up a COVID death and make it something palatable both to ourselves and those around us?
1: Well, of course, many people aren't really aware that they're going to die of it. They're kind of hoping, of course, that they probably won't die of it. But of course, a fraction will. So you put it in an awkward position if you develop this illness. Maybe you've got a lot of other health issues and maybe you're thinking that you haven't got long for this world anyway and that this might be a good opportunity to take the step and end your life. So should you just let the disease take its course or should you in some way work out how you can make this a more pleasant experience? How can you turn it back into the expected old person's friend that was referred to earlier
0: i mean we've got a series of issues that we go through in this month's update to the handbook the first is oxygen
1: yeah we talk about this in uh, some detail in the handbook and the new chapter on covid where we look at different things one might do if one's looking seriously now at using a covid death in other words you think you're going to die you've got the infection you may as well make the infection be that final act of your life how can you ensure that you will die and how can you make the whole process a little friendlier perhaps? And there are several strategies. They're in detail, talked about in detail in this new chapter in the handbook, but briefly, oxygen, of course, that's useful. Uh, it won't speed up your death though. That's just a way of making you feel more comfortable and we've talked about that. That can be done at home with a bit of a, a nasal cannulas and you can have home oxygen. But there are other things you can do too. Are you're referring drugs.
0: here, you're referring to the opiates, the things such as morphine, fentanyl, opium, heroin, and even codeine. Yes, Are I... any of these drugs, I mean, we often hear exit members who have, you know, stockpiled their, their MS content. They haven't, they've not been prescribed them for something else and they've decided to stockpile them, and we often say that, well, it's not a lethal drug for sure on its own, but could a stockpile of old MS content be useful in this context? Well,
1: it certainly could, and this very distressing symptom of gasping for air and air hunger can be significantly alleviated by taking some form of opiate. Now, of course, when people talk about opiates, of course, one of the strongest ones that you might have stockpiled, of course, is morphine in various forms. And morphine, if you do happen to have a stockpile of it, is a very useful drug, not only for making the symptoms of air hunger a little bit easier to deal as you're fighting for breath, taking some morphine can not only stop you feeling the anxiety of not getting enough air, but also, of course, speed up the whole process. So that's good. Now you're saying, well, I haven't got any MS content or home morphine. But does not have to be to any particular it.
0: type of morphine?
1: No, pretty much all of the opiates will do, and that includes, as you said in your little introduction, even something like coding, which is a rather milder form of an opiate, things like fentanyl, things like pethidine, but, of course, some of the illegal opiates too, like heroin.
0: Yeah, but who's going to be going out on the street, you know, buying heroin? Well, it's less likely to a... happen in in the people who are obviously reading the handbook than... Perhaps having been subscribed
1: more things. Look, the members of Exeter are a broad <laughs> church. Many of them, I'm not suggesting they've all got heroin stash, but some of them will have, will have used heroin. And heroin is a widely available illegal drug.
0: Are those baby boomers?
1: Some of them are baby boomers who have experienced heroin users. Look, I'm not suggesting because heroin's got its own problems. It's got to be administered by injection, for example. But nevertheless, the whole broader question is, are opiates useful? And the answer is yes. They will make you feel better, they will speed up the death, and they will effectively convert what could be a miserable experience, perhaps in an intensive care unit, into a rather more pleasant experience, that is death and dying, in your own home, where you're not gasping for every breath of air. And there are a couple of other drugs too we go into in the handbook, but have a look at the handbook and see what you think.
0: might get political here for a few minutes. It's interesting that in 2015 we had a new chapter in the book on chloroquine. Now most people didn't have a clue what chloroquine was and I guess until about a month ago still didn't but President Trump changed all that with his game changer miracle cure. Now we're talking about chloroquine phosphate and hydroxychloroquine. What is it about chloroquine Philip that we're talking about it in regard to COVID?
1: Well you're quite right It it became a chapter in the handbook uh, really because it was a very uh, r- available method for a person to end their life. Chloroquine itself has been an anti-malarial for many, many years. In fact, many much of the malaria that affects people around the world is now chloroquine-resistant. But the drug itself, chloroquine, has been a mainstay for treatment of malaria for a long time. And another drug, which is a development of chloroquine, because that chloroquine is usually in the form of chloroquine phosphate, is hydroxychloroquine. But both of these products are useful anti-malarials, but they also have a useful property which we, that is, exit, have been very interested in, and that is, of course, if you take them in the right way, you'll die. So either of them,
0: they both have this property of ending life peacefully and reliably?
1: Yes, they do. I mean, there's a matter of working out how much free chloroquine is in the form of chloroquine phosphate or hydroxychloroquine. Chloroquine phosphate's a little bit better, but they both can be effectively used to end life, and we put a whole chapter on this in the handbook long before we ever heard of its relevance in the COVID debate.
0: So we knew that they were a reliable end-of-life drug I mean other people obviously also but then mr trump came along and thinks that they're a miracle cure and uh the poor guy in arizona believing trump had them from it a treating fish parasite in his fish tank bought them from his local pet store took a dose of chloroquine phosphate and next thing we know he's dead well, so how does detail. it how does this fit into yeah, the whole bit... covert end of life methods picture
1: there's a a bit of background to this i mean it's true that covid i mean not covid but chloroquine phosphate has been a very available drug you could buy it over the counter in the united kingdom many countries didn't need a prescription you could simply say to uh, the pharmacist, i'm going to travel to an area where there's malaria in fact, there's not too many areas of malaria where chloroquine still works. But if you were, you could say, I'm going to a malaria-infected area. Can I have some chloroquine and not need a prescription? Very readily available drug, which is, of course, something we exploited in the end-of-life debate because here you could get a reliable end-of-life drug without requiring any kind of medical certification or you would not have to tell stories to get this drug. It was readily available. Now, suddenly we are here that maybe this drug, in fact I heard about this long before Trump made a mention, but when I first started to hear about COVID in China, there was rumours around that chloroquine may be a useful drug for the treatment, which isn't totally surprising because the way it deals with malaria, the parasite, the malarial parasite in your blood, it did seem that it has these anti-parasitic properties. Maybe it can have that same effect on a on a virus in this particular case it wasn't bizarre that it was perhaps a likely and useful strategy a drug that might might ameliorate an infection with COVID-19 so I wasn't surprised to hear that they were looking at it. the Chinese had been looking at it. there seemed to be some positive reports and on that basis then suddenly we thought well this is attracting a lot of attention and then president trump comes out and declares that both chloroquine phosphate and hydroxychloroquine are game changers in the whole in the whole anti-covid 19 debate
0: yeah but he said that of injecting disinfectant too
1: Well, he said it said about a number of things but suddenly of course it, everyone started to take notice of this and of course reference you referenced that someone had Seek searching out this drug, which had suddenly become not so readily available as it had been a few years ago because everyone now wanted it, this person, this hapless person from Arizona, had realised something that we didn't know and in some ways we are kind of glad to find out, that chloroquine phosphate has been being sold off-label. Uh, Off-script. <laughs> off Off-script, if you like, as a treatment for a particular form of disease in tropical fish and aquariums. And so you could actually... Not only buy it over the counter saying you were going to an area where they had malaria, but you could not even bother to do that. You could just go down to your pet shop and buy chloroquine phosphate saying you were treating your fish.
0: Can you still get it from pet stores?
1: You can talk about pet stores, but you can certainly still buy it on eBay as well. Having said that, there's been this huge demand because what's happened now is people say chloroquine phosphate might be useful. This person in Arizona clearly believed the President that it was in fact useful and took too much of it and worked out or realised or found had some first-hand experience of another interesting property of chloroquine phosphate. That is, if you take too much of it, you die. He took too much of it and he died. But what he left behind, at least for us at Exit, is the fact that we now have a new source of chloroquine phosphate, one we didn't even know about, that it can be obtained as a treatment for fish diseases. Nevertheless, the whole debate about chloroquine has gone on and on. There seems to be a lot of argument about whether it's particularly useful or not. Generally speaking, it's starting to look like it's not a particularly useful treatment. But what we're left with is a huge demand around the world for this drug. So it's no longer an easy process of just going along to a shop and saying, I'd like to have some chloroquine because I'm going to a malaria area. You won't get it anymore.
0: And that introduces the other change situation, I guess, in a post-COVID world as far as the good death movement is concerned, and that's how the imposition of COVID has changed uh, means that people have to obtain drugs, for example, that would provide a good death. For example, you just in the previous update, but the March update to the book, we were talking and still advising people get on a plane, go to Peru, buy your Nimbutel over the counter. I mean, nobody's getting on a plane to Peru now. I mean, everyone's desperately trying to get charter flights out of Peru. So there's been a number of areas, and you might get you to comment on this, Philip, where post-COVID, a good death is suddenly more, much more difficult.
1: Yeah, The idea that the way the, the way the spread of COVID around the globe and the way there's been moves put in place by many countries to try and restrict its spread have had an impact on all manner of means and ways that people had of obtaining end-of-life options. And then the one you referred to, of course, was a very popular one, and that is you could travel, that is before these extreme travel restrictions have come in around the world, and airlines closed down many of their international flights. It used to, of course, be a very straightforward process to get on a plane and fly into Lima in Peru and buy your best end-of-life drug, Nembutal, over-the-counter. Well, clearly, if you can't go to Peru, you can't do this. So that's removed one of the... I suppose, one of the more popular options for getting the best drug. So that's a way in which COVID, or at least the reaction to the disease, has limited severely one of the perhaps better options for getting a very good end-of-life option. And there's several other ways that the measures put in place to try and control this disease have affected some of the end-of-life choices. One, for example, that is almost affecting it in the other way is that the preoccupation of the authorities in trying to control the spread of people with disease, means that in some way, perhaps paradoxically, it's actually easier now to illegally acquire some of these drugs because the policing of the importation of these drugs seems to be somewhat slacker. In other words, we're getting reports now of more people being able to more readily obtain these drugs. So in one hand, it's become easier to acquire the best end-of-life drug, Nembutal, but another way, it's made it impossible to actually physically go and purchase it yourself.
0: And I guess in terms of finishing this first Doxet podcast, it's had, COVID's had pretty profound implications for the Sarco project, hasn't it? I mean, no sooner had we gone to the opening of Sarco at, at the new Cube Design Museum. It was in early February in the Netherlands and we're marvelling at its wonderful display and at the, um, I guess it's a, it's a science exhibition. So there's, there's lots of very interesting creations, installations, devices about end of life And we see Sarko being brought to a grinding halt because there we were thinking that Sarko Mark II, which was just nearing production completion in the Netherlands, was about to be used in Switzerland. And I think that's now put on the back burner as so many other things are.
1: Yeah, you're right about Sarko. Gosh, we didn't expect anything like this. And, of course, it's one of our one of the projects which I'm most uh, passionately enthusiastic about and that is getting the Sarko working and getting it finished, it's 3D printing and getting it down to Switzerland where it can be used and suddenly we've got all these extra problems such as we can't freely even move around Europe, we can't easily get into Switzerland, all sorts of issues and uh, as you alluded to the Mark 1 version which is really a display version now on display at the Cube Museum, the Cube Museum is is now closed for the duration more importantly though sarco 2 which is the working model nearing completion 3d printing in harlem has had to cease production we can't do the testing even when we do do the testing which will only take we think about a week in the netherlands the plan was then to take it straight down to switzerland well we can't even get into switzerland right now so there's an immense number of unexpected problems and delays caused by this so that plan we had that this, I think, quite revolutionary new way of having a stylish and elegant death in Switzerland, it has to be in Switzerland, of course, because of the law there, but using this device, the sarco isn't going to take place certainly in spring, and I guess it won't take place and we won't be able to predict when it will take place until we know a little bit more about these European border restrictions which are affecting us all.
0: So that brings us to the end of our inaugural Doxet podcast on the very gloomy but omnipresent topic of COVID-19. Next week, we hope to be back talking still about COVID, but with a different slant. We want to be talking about advanced directives and how does this sort of virus, this pandemic, impact upon one's need to have an advanced directive and most importantly, the content and whether having an advance directive plus appointing a proxy agent, guardian. The whole area, regardless of where you live in the world, there are some commonalities which flow through all of these things that you can do to say what your wishes might be should you find yourself unconscious, for example, on ventilation as a COVID patient. We also want to look at next week the recent High Court decision in the Netherlands about dementia patients being able to be given euthanasia by a doctor if it has been noted in their advance directive. It's a pretty significant decision that's come down. It is a, it is a decision that affirms the person's right, a person's right in the Netherlands to be given euthanasia when they are demented. And it follows on from a, a very high-profile court case last year about a doctor who was found to do this to a patient and there was a decision by the public prosecutor to prosecute, to test the law. But the law's come out in favour of the right-to-die movement and we're all pretty Pleased about that. Philip, is there any comment that you'd like to make in closing our first Docsit podcast? Oh,
1: no, I'm very pleased to have been able to be part of this first Docsit podcast. And, of course, you've referred to the fact that there'll be a couple of important topics next week. Of course, COVID's really drawn attention to the need for living well and why you would need one. And, of course, that other interesting thing you mentioned about is of course dementia this is the vex topic and right to die what do you do with someone who's got alzheimer's disease who simply doesn't know what they're doing and what are the solutions well advanced directives provide one solution that's just been ratified by the courts in the netherlands but i'd like to talk about a few other innovative ways we might deal with this so let's do it next week
0: okay so we're talking implants next week implants yes <laughs> Uh, it's the uh, utopian future, according to Philip Nitschke, but it's certainly one that deserves our attention and listening. He's he's convinced me. First of all, I thought, hmm, sounds a bit wacky, but no, there's no solution to the dementia issue and how we make decisions once we don't have capacity, so this, there might just be some promise in this. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Talk to you all next week.